Thank you for listening to Tapping Into the Human, a podcast on addiction, recovery, and mental health, brought to you by The Albertus Project. By tapping into the human behind addiction and mental health, we can empower those suffering by creating a culture of empathy and support. Every week, you'll hear powerful stories from people about their journey with recovery and be inspired by individuals and organizations that are leading the charge in decreasing the stigma surrounding mental health and addiction. Hey, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of Tapping Into the Human. I am very excited to have uh, one of my favorite guests. I think I'll have uh, Jesse Dunleavy, who is the author of actually one of my favorite books, uh, Cover My Dreams in Ink, um, which is just an incredible story about her son, um, about his journey uh, in addiction and recovery, and to be honest, just much more about um, his learning disabilities, kind of how unjust the justice system is, and so many other things that we'll get into in today's episode. Um, thanks to David Poses for introducing Jesse and I. Um, so Jesse, thank you so much for being here. I'm very happy to have you on today. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. For sure. So I know your story and there's so much to it. And we were just fortunate enough to have you on last week uh, or the week before for our book club, which I thought was really fun and exciting and had an opportunity to kind of do a full Q&A with you. But for those of us who are not familiar with you, um, and, and what you do, you're sort of an activist now and Paul's story. Can you just kind of give us a little bit of synopsis of who you are and cover my dreams in ink? Sure. I learned a lot about Paul's journey in hindsight. Obviously I lived it with him, but when things happen over time, you don't always make the connections that you do when you're looking back. And also when you're writing a book, which I was inspired to do, that happens tenfold because you're actually literally gathering pieces of information and collating them and making connections. So I learned that my son's disabilities put him at a disadvantage, obviously, and he was misunderstood in school. He was a, um, he wasn't just a, a standard LD child and needed a different strategy. He had attentional problems. He had a hand tremor and he knew more than he could express. And by the time he was in his early 20s, he had started to self-medicate and it, it's so predictable. And as a parent, I didn't really think about that being any more predictable with him than you would with a mainstream child. But I can now so clearly see, in fact, most people who fall into addiction, not drug use because drug use and addiction are two different things. And so, but fall into it and don't just naturally outgrow it. They're the ones who are the most vulnerable and they either had some kind of developmental disability or some kind of trauma or some kind of isolation. And so it's very sad, especially considering that they're the people that we think punishment is the best way to go. And, you know, that it's just the opposite of what they need. So. It's through writing the book and through recounting Paul's experiences that I connected all of the pieces that have turned me into an activist. And I did a lot of research with regard to addiction and recovery and just um, a deeper look at what's, at what's on the surface because what's on the surface is, is really mostly false. Yeah, inaccurate. And so the more you learn, the more inspired you get to want to share it with others because it isn't just like, oh, come look at what I learned. 
but it, we're talking about life and death. And we're talking about more deaths each year that I've been doing this. You know, it was so shocking to the country when there were 40,000 overdose deaths. And that's the time at which we said, oh, we have a crisis. And, and we put a lot of resources and a lot of airtime and a lot of discussion about the crisis. And now the past 12 months, it's 100,000. And we called it a crisis when it was 40,000. So it's beyond a crisis. And it's a tragedy too, because these people are dying before they get the chance to recover. Most people do recover. Addiction isn't a lifelong condition in most cases. Yeah, no, it's, and, and I love what you did, right? And I know we chatted about this on the book club, but you hear 100,000 lives lost in the past year and you say, oh, what a tragedy, you know? Oh, how awful that is. And then you match stories like Paul's to every single person and you realize it's just not a number. These are 100,000 human beings with amazing capabilities and they're special people and they have lives and they have family and friends. And I just think, you know, a lot of people hear that statistic and sort of like, oh, 100,000, you know, next year might be 110. But having stories like these to pull out the narrative, kind of like the humans of addiction stuff we do to really say, hey, these are these are similar stories to you and me. And these are just regular people with who have lost their lives because of something that really could be prevented. Right. And, and it's a loss to society. It's a loss, obviously, to a family and to that person who deserved to live and, yeah. and didn't make it. But even if you look at the world through an economic lens, the amount of money we're losing in productivity of these people, our actual um, life expectancy has gone down because of this death toll. And 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, people who were addicted to heroin weren't dying at the rate they are now. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I believe our policies are just massively flawed. And that's where the frustration comes in. But another thing, back to your point, I think you're right, that when it's humanized for you, Exactly. You, 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 you connect to it. You feel it. And I think a story like Paul's, one thing I was really hoping is at the outset, and it certainly wasn't to say, oh, look at what we went through. You know, I, I've, I, had, I had it rough. No, it was to have you understand this child. And I believe as you do and you travel the journey with him, yep. so to speak, you're endeared by him. He's got a lot of, of endearing qualities and he's kind-hearted and he does struggle with his differences, but he's amazingly resilient. So he's got a lot of strength. And you then say, wait a minute, this isn't a moral failure. Exactly. Well, that, that's, Whereas, that's exactly, you want a roof for him. You want him you to fall in, in love with him. You know, yeah. one of the people who wrote a um, advanced praise for the book, a man named Roger Karloff, who was, um, the editor-in-chief of Fortune magazine at one point in time, and he's just a, a, a journalist of, of high caliber, to, to put it mildly. He said, one, you know, he had many people who loved him, especially his mother, but she made us love him too. And that is just one of those lines that stayed with me because that's exactly what I, I didn't even know I wanted it, but when I read that, I thought, yes, Yes, That's I the point. Yeah. Words, but well, and, and you do fall in love with Paul. And I think it's, 
I mean, obviously your writing's incredible, but you know, as I was reading the book, right, Connie, you come out from the onset and, and this was me, you know, almost a year ago when my friend passed and having all these, um, you know, stigmas in my head saying it's a choice. Well, why don't they just work harder and they can get out of it? And I think, you know, I've obviously learned a ton uh, in the past year and I no, no longer have that mindset. But I think for someone who picks up your book and is just expecting, uh, well, hey, uh, addiction is addiction and this is a choice and you know, have all these uh, stigmas in their head, I think if they pick up your book and read it, it is a perfect example of how everything that we are taught, even from when we were young, right? All these misconceptions, you just flip it on its head. It's a 180 degree turn of, wow, okay, th this is sort of checking exactly what I thought was uh, wrong with the system and well actually in reality these people want to get better they want to be happy they want to be healthy and and especially for vulnerable people like paul the system is just stacked against them right like i do want to talk about uh there was a time where he uh you know broke his parole and he was you know using again and he had to go to jail can you sort of talk about that because that as a mother, I can only imagine for someone like Paul being stuck in jail for like literally not doing anything, but it was frightening as a reader and you just wanted to go in there and hold him and, and protect him. Can you talk it, about that? It, it was a disaster. Um, it is such a horrible place. Um, and I can't speak to every prison system in the country. Yeah. But he was in a horrible place. For one thing, he was hungry. And, and knowing that your child is hungry, mm. it doesn't get much worse. He, he, um, a family could send their inmate um, money through a, a green dot money card. I, I never heard of this, you know, you go to 7-Eleven and say, okay, I need a green dot money card. No checks, no cash, no, you know, so I understand that. But, and that way you can use the commissary and you really want to use the commissary because they don't give you toothpaste or shampoo yeah. or, or anything like that. So he needed the commissary. Plus he's hungry. So they have things, I imagine, like snacks. snacks. Or he said snacks. I don't know. I don't think it was apples, but whatever. Um, the minute he took it out of the envelope, when he opened it from, it was taken from him because the other inmates, wherever he went, he was an easy mark. Yeah. And if you're, even in school, children can be cruel. And he'd go to the candy store that, down at the corner when he was a kid and I'd give him a $5 bill to get a candy bar, which at the time probably cost 50 cents. And he'd come back without any change. So they knew, you know, yeah. that he was an easy mark. And so in a system like that, here he had been mistreated or, you know, people weren't sensitive to his differences wherever he went, but this is a whole different kettle of fish. And so he was sexually exploited. I don't go into that in the book, but it was just a horrible place. And so, and he was in a cell that something like 10 feet by 10 feet with another person. And he was in there for 23 hours a day. Yeah. Eight in there. And it was years after he got out of that place that I read an article in, um, was it US News and World Report? I don't know, but it was one of the news magazines. And it said, this particular facility is one of the worst in the countries. The inmates run the place. 
Yeah. Um, there, the each each cell has a, a bump, and this is this is the part that just killed me. A rimless toilet, toilet sink yeah. combination. I know I've been protected in some way. I was horrified. I was horrified by that. And how it's hot in the summer and cold in the winter and the paint's peeling and bare light bulbs and nothing comfortable. I mean, it's just horrible. So it was a terrible experience. And they, you know, prison systems make money. There aren't as many private prisons as most people think. But where they make money is on the commissary and on the phone system. And so you could pay to, to be able to talk to him. So he couldn't just call me, but yep. if I paid oh, no. and, and it's a, an account that you open, it's called, at the time it was called talk to your inmate. So I paid and you had to keep putting money in to make sure that you know he could get through. And I'm in Annapolis, Maryland. He's in Baltimore, Maryland about 35 miles apart. We couldn't hear each other. The static and the interference on the line was so horrendous that we really couldn't make out each other's words. It wasn't just that it was difficult. We couldn't hear each other. And he's in tears. Yeah. And he could tell me something and I'm paying for this and it's not working. So there's a lot of profit made on these phone systems. And now I understand that they're not allowing mail anymore in some in some places. Really? But instead you have access to a tablet so you can send an email. And of course they oversee it, but they charge you for it. Yeah. So think, and when you think too, that most people who are in the prisons are economically deprived and then their poor families are having- You're just not gonna be able to get in touch with them. For shampoo and to talk with them and now to even communicate with them via mail. So it's awful. Yeah, it's it's just it's fundamental it's human rights. By everybody. He was mistreated by the people that ran the place. He was mistreated by the other um, inmates. Inmates, and he shouldn't have been there. It wasn't the answer. Yeah. No. I I, I know it. It it's it's so heartbreaking, and you realize you know after you know if you just do a little bit of education, there is no proof no evidence no data nothing to suggest that those who are dealing with substance abuse issues or addiction or anything like that benefit from a punitive justice system like that in fact when people then leave those systems they are so much more likely to die from uh, an overdose because they no longer have any tolerance and there's no bridge to connect the prison system in real life right right and and also they're coming out further wounded yeah in terms of the isolation so you 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 know you're dealing with a vulnerable person you know most people who use addictive drugs don't become addicted right and i grew up thinking oh you touch heroin once and that's it that's it you know it's a a dramatic turning point in your life and you're and you're hooked forever and so you know it always worried me but looking back on my own youth my 20s and the, and the people that I knew, sure, there are a lot of people who used what we called hard drugs at the time. It wasn't just pot, it was cocaine or, or whatever, methamphetamine, but they, they outgrew it. They didn't really become addicted. So, you know, when, when boys were coming back from Vietnam, the country was worried that we were going to have hundreds of thousands of heroin addicts. 
because there was a lot of heroin use over there. But these people came home and the high percentage of them, 75 or 80% never used again because they had a life worth living. Yeah. And so that's the turning point. But for the people who do outgrow it, it's just like you might go in the bars more when you're in your 20s or, or late teens and, and you're kind of stumbling around and you might have a job, but you might not. And you might be sleeping on somebody's couch and then you get a job that you like and you're interested in it. You've got a chance for a promotion or you fall in love or there's a child in your life all of a sudden. And so these things that are just part of the natural maturation process pull you away from that drug use. But the people who can't get out of it without help, they're the vulnerable ones. They're the ones that don't have anything pulling them up. And then we take them and punish them. Yeah. So it is absolutely the opposite. And there is no truth to the concept that in order to be ready for recovery, you have to hit rock bottom. It, it just simply isn't true. And, and so it's just one of those fallacies. And so parents will actually turn their back on a child because, and, and they may be loving and empathetic people, but they're thinking, no, he's got to hit rock bottom. And tough love, no, tough love. If hitting rock bottom was the answer, everybody would be coming out of prison all ready to go. Well Let, said. Let, let's, uh, you know, get on with it. We're, we're, we're better now. No, there's just so much that needs to be done. And it is so very sad. And you know, economic insecurity is a big contributor yes. to drug use and that hopelessness. You can understand it. For sure. But then you, you get out and you're economically disadvantaged and you can't get in public housing because you have a record. Yeah. And Good you job. can't apply for a scholarship in a college program because you have a record. So... We take the vulnerable people, we do something that doesn't help them, and then we turn them out with more strikes against them than they had going in. Yeah. And so we really just have to stop the punitive. If, if you're violent and you violate the rights of others, then there has to be some system for keeping you um, out of the danger zone, bringing, bringing harm to others. So I understand that. But when it's a nonviolent crime, possession of marijuana or whatever drug, it, jail isn't the right place. And we're, and we're overloading our jail system. We have the highest incarceration rate in the world. It's, it's embarrassing. And so I would think that we'd be delighted to lop off the people who aren't guilty of violating okay. the rights of others. But no, we're not. We are hell-bent. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's a whole perspective. It is the war on drugs. And you know what? All of us, myself included, none of us were alive when drugs were last legal. They've been illegal our whole life. So we are in this mindset that, well, that's illegal. And so you don't, like you said at the outset, you don't really think deeply about it. And so that's where the stigma comes from. A hundred percent. I know that destigmatizing is a goal, but I don't know how in the world we I know. destigmatize something that we criminalize it for. It, it, well, exactly. And, you know, I, I think about it this way too, right? Like, and I know you and I have chatted about this sort of extensively, but our laws, right, reflect the uh, sign of the time. So unless we start electing people and demanding from our representatives, well, 
this whole thing is BS. The war on drugs doesn't work. It's actually killing people. You need to increase access to medication-assisted treatment. You need to increase the number of supervised injection sites, whatever it may be. It's going to continue to be the same narrative that it is, right? You have a very small minority, for example, in Congress who are even thinking about that stuff because it's controversial. So unless we start rising up and saying we demand this, this doesn't make any sense and going about it with the data. But I hate to say you even go at some people with the data and they're, they're, they will refute the data with some, you know, BS claim yeah, of there whatever. Is, there is a huge gap between the science and the research yep. and our policies. There is a huge gap. And, you know, some of our lawmakers really do get it and they fight for the reform that's needed. Some get it, but don't want to fight, don't want to stand up because yep. it could cost them their, their position. And you know, it's a conundrum because when we say, well, he did that just to get reelected, that sounds so smarmy. But in one way I can understand it right. because if I think I'm the best person for the job and I'm going to help with poverty and I'm going to help with the, the humanistic goals, that would make for a better society. But yet I'll lose to a person who won't bring any humanism to it. If I stand up for decriminalizing drugs, then maybe I can't take that stand because in the end it costs more to mm. society. So it's tough. So really sometimes I think instead of trying to educate our um, elected officials, we've got to educate society. But you know, the media doesn't help us. Yeah. That's a sweeping statement, but you would think because there is so much science and so much data and so much factual information that that would be what's perpetuated. And it isn't, it's so frustrating to read articles and you just think, why aren't you, why are you embellishing these misunderstandings? I guess some of it's sensationalism. I don't know. Yeah, no, it's, it's tough. And, you know, I've talked about this extensively, but I think the most difficult thing and is especially when you're trying to learn about addiction and you know no one has the attention span unless you're really invested in it you really could care less so it's whatever you see so the media certainly doesn't help but all that needs to be done right is is if you actually take five minutes to question sort of your understanding of everything and you look up the information sometimes you'll you'll be able to find it the challenging part I find with addiction is that there are so many different answers, even within the same community. You have some doctors who you feel like would be educated on it, but they're simply not, and they don't want to prescribe, and they don't take the waivers that you need to prescribe buprenorphine, for example. Right, and you have, have a waiver. Right, and then you have the 12-step program that says you have to do this, and if you don't, you're going to die. And then you have other people who say, you know, harm reduction is uh, necessary in order to survive. You have so many different things. So, for example, when I was trying to learn, well, what's the right answer when it comes to addiction? We have a fragmented community versus for cancer. You go to a particular specialist that deals with that exact type of cancer, and it's not controversial what you do. You treat it with medicine. Right. And, and so we need just an overarching goal. Yeah. To see addiction as a public health dilemma as a medical condition right not a criminal justice condition 
And so we have only exacerbated the problem with, with our policies. But it is frustrating that so many stakeholders will tell you different things. Yeah. But again, the science isn't confused. Right. The fact of the matter is the use of buprenorphine or methadone saves 50% at least of the lives. And that is just, it's irrefutable. I it's, agree. It, it, there, and it's been irrefutable for years. And you see study after study after study after study. And so that doesn't mean that everybody who recovers has to go that way. But it means that you can't deny people that opportunity and you can't exactly. take somebody into treatment and not tell them about it. People can make decisions for themselves. And the stigma that surrounds the treatment is just as bad as the stigma that surrounds the condition. A thousand percent. I honestly think, and, and this is the interesting thing, when you are dealing with addiction, the stigma is from the outside community. It's people who don't understand it. So you have to deal with that and people are ashamed. Then when you're in the community, the stigma comes from the community who understands addiction about medicine. That's what's so crazy. It's like you can't win, right? Because whether it's you know a 12-step program or a certain doctor says, oh, you really shouldn't be on it. Or you should only be on it for six months. It's not a long-term treatment. It's like I can only imagine being those people, right? I mean, I know Paul at one time went to 12-step programs. If he continued that was, that going- was state of the art. That was yeah. all there was. And yeah. I, I was naive. I didn't know. And it wasn't good for him. And I'm not saying, therefore, it's bad for everybody. Right. No, it works you know, for a lot of people. People, too, are, are, are so um, emotional about this. And if, if you recovered 20 years ago, let's just say, and you recovered and you were in a 12-step program, you fight for that 12-step program for everybody. And that doesn't make any sense. The, the analogy that I use is it's like saying, I met my husband on Match.com and we're very happy. Therefore, yeah. if you didn't meet your husband on Match.com, then you're not going to be happy. No, no one thinks like that. Yeah. So, so a lot of the people who recovered through the 12-step program would have recovered anyway because there's so many people who just grow up and do it. And, and there's nothing like camaraderie and people who understand. And Supporting I do get you. Yeah. But I can get it free in the church basement around the corner. There are 12-step programs in every community. And so why is insurance paying for inpatient when 12-step program is the, the, the mode of treatment when, it's, when it doesn't cost anything and no one denies that there's a role for peer support and, and camaraderie. If I have cancer, I'm going to go and get the medical treatment and maybe I will be well served by a group of peers who have the same condition or did or their family did. So there is a place for that, that um, connection with others who, who struggle as you do. But you know, back to the medication, I do think more people are realizing that it Works. needs to yeah. be more prevalent and that we shouldn't have all the restrictions that we have. And some of the restrictions were listed, lifted a little bit yes. um, during COVID. But the other piece of that is Long-term use is associated with higher success than short-term use. But they don't Yet, like that narrative. But people will say, I had a, a um, physician yell at me when I was seeking um, buprenorphine for Paul. And he said, don't you know 
that you're just replacing one problem with another? another. Yeah. Don't you know that he could be on this for the rest of his life? And I was intimidated by this man and I regret that, small in the world of my regrets, but I wished, well, maybe not so small. I wished I'd said to him, what it prolongs is life. Isn't that what we want? Yeah. And the other thing is, would I rather have Paul and have him be on buprenorphine or not have him? And the and also, no one says you have to stop taking your Prozac. Yep, I'm so on anxiety medication. Some medications, yeah, are okay to take for life, and other medications aren't. Look at David poses. The best thing about his book, other than it made me laugh <laughs> and and cry, um, and was interesting, but the best message that it sent is that buprenorphine saved his life. He's, he was on heroin for 20 years and he had a hell of a struggle with it. And when he found the answer for him, he's been fine since and he's fine. You're not And he's fine. still on it. And there's yeah, no it, adverse reactions or anything. No, I You'll agree with you, Jesse. Right? I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm not, a, um, you know, reading the tarot cards, but that's, that's what he's led me to believe. And so, and he's not alone. It's really just terrible that we have this prejudice and then the poor person on methadone. Yeah, I know. That's a whole other nightmare that you have to go and line up and be mistreated. Every day. And, and you can't, I have a friend who's, whose son is on methadone. They go on vacation, he can't go because he's got to go every day. They, they're not going to give you two weeks worth, no. Yeah, no, and they treat you like I'm not. Again, I don't like to make sweeping statements. I know there are a lot of good-hearted people who work in these facilities, but for the most part, those people are treated like criminals. I you know. know they're suspect. I saw something the other day where somebody was arrested waiting in line for her methadone, and she was arrested because she had, I don't know, a wrapper from some some dust from some drug, something that maybe had been in her pocket a long time. I don't know. But I think if you really want to go and and look for people to arrest, go look at the lines there, go into the projects, go into the vulnerable um, communities, and you can make a lot of arrests. But this poor woman was put in jail and she didn't have her methadone anymore. What are we doing? It's just inhumane. It's maddening. It's and maddening. It, um, there, there's a lot of corruption too within the treatment systems, and I'm not pointing the finger at all of them by any means. But you, you, you know about the places that'll, you know, say you're ready to go, and then they're in cahoots with the people who offer you drugs, and then you're back in because it's a money-making industry. And again, I don't think that most people who are um, working with people who are suffering you know, have that sinister approach. But still, there's a lot of corruption because it's unregulated. Again, back to the cancer or, you know, let's use diabetes for a change. Um, you know, there, there's, a, there's a medical system that's highly accountable to accreditation and to certification and to staying abreast of, of um, the science and, and what's available in terms of treatment. But this is all, a lot of times you go into a facility where 
not only is there not a medical professional, there might not be a college graduate. Not that that separates the men from the boys, but still, these are good-hearted people who've been through it themselves and they want to help. Right. But if you have a co-occurring condition or if you do need medication, these people aren't going to know it and they're just driving that 12-step program because, again, it was good for them. So it's unfortunate. And, that, and it's tied up with insurance and, and lobbyists. Yeah. And it's a conundrum it because, is. you know, there, there's a lot of money to be made with the war on drugs. And so you're fighting. Maybe. You're fighting a lot of different parties. That That's the challenge here, right? It's like, I mean, we just talked about like insurance companies, pharmaceuticals, uh, you know, the government, DEA, like there's just, there's so much. And I think, and I know you and I both believe it, like a huge part of this is the stigma and education. Um, and that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. And I know that's why you're doing what you're doing. If we can just get people educated, at least so they just get the basic facts when the government or whoever is saying, oh, well, no, 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 this is the answer. You're like, uh, actually, no, like you don't know what you're talking about and you can stand up, right? Like you were talking about that doctor who's like, oh no, Paul shouldn't be on buprenorphine. It's education is power, right? You could now go back and say to this guy, actually the statistics say 79% and go on, right? But if you don't know, and, th and this is what I always say, like, in order to help a loved one, people are always like, Alex, like, how can I help my loved one suffering? Educate yourself and give them the options. Everyone thinks they got to go to a 12-step meeting and go away for 30 days into recovery. Hey, that might work for some people, but you actually don't need that, right? They don't have a good track record. And, and inpatient isn't all it's cracked up to be. If you have a, if you're homeless, or unhoused, um, then maybe you need that roof over your head. But if you have a place to live, you're much better off as an outpatient than an inpatient, just in terms of the data. And you can be an outpatient who's on medication and forego even the therapy. Yeah, I know. Now I know that there's controversy with regard to that, but that's why a, a lot of people, certainly those on the, leading edge of the research don't even want to call it mat anymore yeah because, because why is it medication assisted treatment it's just treatment yeah yeah and and it's just it's medication for opioid use disorder so they're calling it m-o-u-u-d yeah yes. so you know th that's a mouthful but nevertheless it it's it can be misleading and you don't say medication assisted when again you're on with your own insulin. Yeah, it's just yeah. treatment. And so many of our um, health conditions, not all by any means, but they are exacerbated by lifestyle choices. The cigarette smoker who has lung cancer, well, you could say, well, he brought that on himself, so we'll put him in jail instead of treating right. his lung cancer. Yeah, can you imagine? Well, no, we, no, can you imagine? No. And so we treat the lung cancer and he continues to smoke. We don't say we're not treating you anymore. Exactly. Or we don't shame him, right? And and the diabetic who's on insulin, we don't take it away because you ate a box of cookies. So we yeah. we really have to stop the criminalization. And it is it was racist and mean spirited in the first place. And you'd think we would have learned with alcohol prohibition. Yeah. Because 
alcohol prohibition brought on more problems than it solved. And it doesn't mean that there aren't some people who unfortunately, you know, have ruined their lives because of alcohol. But so they, they make it illegal. So the people who used to drink beer and wine can't get it anymore. So they're drinking bathtub gin or moonshine or whatever they could get. It's much more dangerous. It's much more addictive. And it gave rise to violent crime, the underground market. And so we've done the same thing with drugs. They are so much more potent. You know, in Canada, they don't just have um, buprenorphine or methadone. They have heroin-assisted treatment. Yep. Because pure heroin isn't going to kill you. Right. And a low dose of heroin can be a gradual way to get over your addiction and not risk the additives that we're risking now. Yeah, safe supply. Safe so supply. yeah, safe supply. So, I mean, that's a big leap for people in, in this is. country. But you know, that's kind of a shame too because other countries have gotten their minds around that. I was in a um, meeting the other day and we were listening to a man who, who lives in Canada who was talking about um, dispensing machines. Yeah. Dispensing um, clean syringes or yep. condoms or- um, There's even quite a few in Canada. Things. And so it's, it's a wonderful idea because they're open 24 hours a day and people can access the, what they need to, to stay safe. And so I did ask him because clean needles are certainly one of the most used um, supplies that people need and that have a wonderful track record of saving lives and lowering the spread of disease. It's incredibly successful. But I said to him, is paraphernalia illegal in Canada? He said, no, we, we don't wanna be bothered with that. We wanna get people better. And, I, and it just makes you so envious. Oh, we want to be bothered with it. We were not bothered with it. Um, yeah, oh yeah, yeah we're going to go after you for paraphernalia when you have no drug. So we're just assuming that you're going to break a law. So we're going to arrest you and you can be put in jail for yeah. years for yeah. possessing a, a, a pipe. Yeah, we're just gonna arrest you. It's like we're just gonna arrest you for driving because oh, we think we're gonna you're gonna speed. It's yes. yeah, no, yeah. I, I know. And, and it's so crazy. you know, it really, really is, and and it's there is no data anywhere that suggests that the time in jail served any purpose for the person who's struggling with addiction. Yeah, and the other thing is, you know. Not all drug users are addicted. There are people who use drugs recreationally and who do so successfully, not unlike alcohol. Alcohol is more dangerous than a, than a lot of the drugs that yep. you know, we, we classify as, you know. Hard drugs. Highly, highly criminal yeah. um, to use. And we have people who use drugs, you know, look, don't think there aren't people working on Wall Street that are using cocaine or, and it might be a weekend thing, it might be a once a month thing, but if they're arrested, which is highly unlikely because we're much more likely to go into the marginalized communities than we are to mess with people in the wealthy communities, nor are we going onto Columbia University's campus and busting people for pot, yeah. we just don't. 
So we go after the people who are vulnerable. But um, the people, if you are arrested though, let's just say you use drugs recreationally and you've never had an addiction problem, but you're arrested for possession. Well, they wanna put you in treatment. You don't need treatment. And they think drug court is the benevolent way to go. Well, it's not if you don't need treatment. Right. That's why I love Portugal and what they're doing. Cause if you are using, you know, A, it's decriminalized, but if you are using drugs or, you know, and it gets to a certain point, you go to uh, a court type system, but it's with medical professionals, psychologists, um, doctors who deal with addiction and specialize in it. And the vast majority, you c- they can give a fine, but the vast majority end up just going free because they're like, oh, you don't know, you've, you've gone through our test, you're not addicted. And then they go on about their lives. There's no criminal record. It, it's it's so tough, you know, because the more I find, and I'm sure you'd agree with this, Jesse, like I find the more that I know, uh, the more angry I am. <laughs> because mm. it's, it's it, you just realize like, if people like you and me who were in power, who could really start changing these things, just had sort of the same thoughts that you and I, we'd be so much better off. There would just be lives saved. And isn't that the whole point of what There would we be money for? saved, do you know? Yeah. That we not only have the highest prison population in the world by far, you know, we have 5% of the world's population and 25% of its prisoners. So it's utterly shameful. Yeah. And we spend, the last time I did a little poking around with this, um, we spent 80 billion a year on um, incarcerating people or, or, and 12 billion a year on education. Yeah. Shouldn't it be the opposite? Yes. Yes. So here we have more prisoners than any, you know, mass incarceration is just an an embarrassment, but it's costing us money and we're not prioritizing where we should be putting the money. Yeah. You know, it's, and harm reduction. Let's talk about harm reduction. That's all controversial. Why? Why? There's no one I've talked to yet that you sit down and explain it to them. And then they're like, away oh, saying, oh, the harm reduction is seatbelts. Harm reduction like is helmets. sunscreen. Yeah. Harm reduction is fences around pools and helmets. Yeah. Some of the harm reduction is regulated by the law. You have to wear your seatbelt. Some of it is just good old common sense. Nobody's going to arrest you if you don't use sunscreen. But harm reduction acknowledges that human behavior can, humans do take risks and let's minimize the risks. Yeah. So driving a car is a risk. People die in car accidents. So, you know, we we want to minimize those risks. So it's crazy to say, well, harm reduction enables drug use. Do you know how many people say that? And sometimes it's an elected official and you just think you should know better. Yeah. You should just know better. And they should. Okay, so let's just say they open a, a, a syringe service program around the corner from me. I'm unlikely to say, oh, I've never used drugs before, but now, now I they have this uh, yeah. the syringe program. I think I'm going to start. Yeah. No, <laughs> nor is the person who's addicted going to say, well, I was going to hold off, but now that they've got the clean syringes, I'm going to go for it. No, that person's going to use dirty. Exactly. And spread disease to those of us who don't even use drugs. 
but we don't want to give them clean syringes. I mean, yeah. everybody knows since the 80s that syringe programs save lives, but yet you have people who don't want them. Yeah, no, they, it's, they, it's they, they enable drug use. How explain to me, show me some data that that substantiates that clean syringes increase and encourage drug use. I agree. No, it's 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 so tough, Jesse. And I was gonna say, obviously it's been a pleasure chatting with you. You and I can go on forever and ever. Oh, yeah, we we're, we're both we're both so aligned on all this stuff and I think it's really important. Um my last question to you, and, as, and I always ask this, um, to our audience, what is your piece of advice? Um, what do you want people to know? Um, and then we'll talk about where they can find your book and follow you on Instagram and all that cool stuff. I guess one primary message is that good people can fall into bad circumstances. And they are often victims of their circumstances and it's not representative of a character flaw or moral failure. So compassion for people who are struggling is so important. And the other is that our policies have increased the death toll. And until we take a new tack, we're, we're going to continue to see this climb. And we have all these strategies and we spend money, but we're not measuring the, the, what we've implemented against the death toll because it's so obvious that it's not working. The, the war on drugs is a colossal failure. There's no good that's come from it. Yeah. So that's the two. No, I appreciate it, Jesse. And where can everyone, where can we find Cover My Dreams and Ink? Is that available on Amazon? Yes, and if you go to my website, which is jessiedunlavy.com, cool. um, there, there are buttons for Barnes & Noble and Amazon and all of the awesome. retailers. Um, here locally, it's in the public library and, and in a few bookstores, but um, online is the easiest way. And so, yeah, that's the, that's the way to get okay. Well, Jesse, thank you so much for all your time. Thank you, Alex. Thank you for everything you do. I I admire you and appreciate you and think that what you're doing is awesome. I appreciate that. Awesome. Okay, everyone. Well, thank you so much for joining today's episode and make sure you pick up a copy of Cover My Dreams and Ink. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. By tapping into the human behind addiction and mental health, we can empower those suffering by creating a culture of empathy and support. You can find more episodes of Tapping Into the Human and resources about addiction and mental health by following The Albertus Project on social media at Albertus Project and at www.albertusproject.org. Thank you.